Welcome back to Hot Flashes and Cool Topics, the podcast for women in midlife and beyond. At Hot Flashes and Cool Topics, we talk about anything and everything to do with midlife. My name is Colleen. My name is Bridget. And today we have on Gabrielle Glazer, who is an author, and she wrote a book a while back about women and alcohol. And we thought that this would be a really important topic to talk about today, because not only has the pandemic caused stress for women trying to juggle home and family coming back and work, but the secrecy behind drinking at home. And it's no longer a social aspect, but it's actually becoming an addiction in private, we thought was an interesting topic to explore. So she wrote a book called Her Best Kept Secret, Why Women Drink and How They Can Regain Control. And it's a great book. It was written in 2013. We're also going to talk about her new book, which is all about adoption. So you should check that out as well. But the book really was interesting because it not only talks about the history, kind of the national history of alcoholism, Mm -hmm. but it's talks about the dangers involved in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I want to start off by saying this conversation is about suggestions. We are not talking about genetic components to alcohol. Um, There are severe issues with alcohol that we are not going to get into. We're really talking about the response to increasing your alcohol intake because women are stressed. Women are, you know, not able to juggle everything. So we don't want to in any way infer that this is going to equate to someone who has a genetic component for alcoholism. But Bridget, the book was really great, wasn't it? Oh, I I was so surprised by it. Um, I was so surprised by how AA really isn't great for women. And especially you would never think that. Right. Especially the history of it and how, you know, once again, we're coming up with how women were put down. If you were, it wasn't the WC Fields of alcohol and the jokey guy. If it was a woman, she was like, you know, some kind of, I don't know, harpy or whatever, you know, she was negative connotation, definitely negative connotation. And even in the history of AA, but what uh, uh, Gabrielle says is that it was, this was started in the 1930s. So this is a long time ago when this was started and things have changed and how, you know, initially wasn't even for women and that you have to be very leery too, when you're in a group like this about sexual predators, which was so shocking. Kind of mind blowing, right? It was mind blowing. Yeah. But, and also it was great to hear about the alternatives that are out there. And we're going to talk about them at the, uh, in our interview as well. And also about the use of moderation, um, in drinking. Um, but you know, what, what can work for you and how it can be devastating and how it really isn't good for your health. I mean, you know, that was another thing we didn't really get into it in our interview, but how, um, some percentages of cancers, are more prevalent, maybe not up as high as you would think they would be, but they are the more you drink and they have done some studies, but I think some of the studies weren't uh, blind studies. So uh, they may not be as accurate in their findings, but it really was a very interesting take and a really neat way to look and delve into what's happening. Why is this happening? Why have these uh, numbers increased? Why have DUIs increased Right, women. just women being arrested that was, drunk driving. Yes, 
interesting. Yes. And I think for women in our demographic, our kids are no longer home. So we kind of feel like we've earned the right to, like you said, have a glass of wine when we're making dinner or mm-hmm. have a glass of wine after dinner with our significant other, or have a glass of wine while we're binge watching Netflix. And that wine can turn very quickly into vodka, which can turn into mixed drinks, which can turn into needing that to get through the night. So the fact that she talks about maybe stalling when you start to drink and drinking maybe two hours later than you had initially planned. There are options that she talks about. Preface that by saying the more, the later you drink, the hotter your hot flashes and night sweats will be. But that's, that's true. true. That's true. Yes. <laughs> at the end of the conversation, we also talk about her new book on adoption and the story of a friend of hers who was searching for his birth mother and the birth mother was searching for him because the baby had been taken from her and the history yes. of adoption in our country. It's a really yes. great book. We're so, going to Gabrielle yeah. take over and, and talk about both books, but we're going to start mm-hmm. off with a conversation on the increased drinking for women and not just midlife and beyond, but the increased drinking in women. So here we go, guys. Enjoy the conversation. Welcome back to Hot Flashes, guys. Today, we're going to have a really interesting conversation with author Gabrielle Glazer. And she has a book out recently called American Baby, A Mother, a Child, and the Shadow History of Adoption, which we're going to talk about a little bit later. But first, we want to talk about her the best kept secret, why women drink and how they can regain control. So welcome to the show, Gabrielle. Thanks for having me. Happy to be with you. We're really interested in this conversation. You know, it's been exacerbated by the pandemic, obviously. So this is kind of post-pandemic time. But your book really delves not just into stay-at-home moms, but they talk about after-work drinkers and how the stress is just its an indicator of why women are starting to drink more. So what brought about this book? What made you say, I need to write a book about this? I saw an op-ed in the New York Times in 2009 that said, why is mom in rehab? And it was a, there were data points showing the number of women who had entered rehab for drugs and alcohol going from the, I think it was the late 1970s through the early 2000s. And the rise was striking. And I thought to myself, I wonder why that is. And not too long afterwards, there was a woman who had been, I'm sure you remember this story, she had been camping with her husband, her kids, her in-laws, and she had her own children and her nieces in the car. On On a Sunday morning, a hot summer day, I would like to say it was July or August, July or August in, I think, 2009, this woman was driving a minivan and careened into oncoming traffic carrying, I don't remember how many children, five, I believe, and she killed everybody but I think one child, She and um, in addition to the, the people she struck, and Eight people died as a result of that accident. And when they checked her blood alcohol level, it was beyond imagining. She was deeply blitzed on vodka on a beautiful summer morning after a camping trip. Now, okay, um, we all know what family trips can mean and how stressful that might be and how stressful sometimes things go when you've got little kids. But 
to be have a blood alcohol level of, of whatever that was. I, I, I think it was three times over the legal limit. Okay. Uh, wow. Um, yeah. So you can't even imagine that she'd have the wherewithal to get in a car, let alone drive. So that was another data point. And then I started thinking about how alcohol had increased in my own life. I became a mother in the early 1990s. And when my oldest child was a, a, a little girl and a baby and I would have playdates with mothers, we'd go to the park, we'd go swimming, we'd go to a museum. And when I had my third daughter, a couple of months after 9-11, everybody, it was a very, very stressful time. I lived outside New York City. I knew nine people who had been killed in the, in the towers. The entire town was devastated. And obviously, she was, my little one was my third daughter. I had all the stuff, right? I had all the clothes. I had all the, I had everything I needed. But what was really surprising is that as a baby gift, my friends brought wine. And that really, we sort of laughed about it. And the, but the, 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 the subtext was, really stressful time. We know you're going to be needing this. You may not be drinking it right now. I was nursing. I had a brand new baby. I wasn't, you know, <laughs> chugging uh, wine. But um, those those points stayed with me, and I realized that wine had become pretty much a daily part of my life. I didn't. I've never considered myself to have, be a, a heavy drinker, but I saw how it had gone from zero in my life to a stressful post 9-11, where it was a thing. Everybody was always drinking. But there was a woman on my street who used to dump her bottles of Chilean Merlot, big, huge liter and a half bottles of, of her empties in my recycling bin. And it happened every single Monday morning. I don't drink red wine. I can't drink most red wine. It gives me a headache. It wasn't mine. And occasionally I would see her do it. And I just, I guess I, I just understood, okay, well, she doesn't want to see those wine bottles. So I had those data points in my head, both anecdote and what was happening. Oh, I know. There was another thing. Women were being arrested for drunk driving at a rate 30 times high, 30% at a 30% higher rate than they had ever been before. So that was enough for me to sort of sit back, sit down, make a proposal, and delve into what were the reasons. The points were clear, the evidence was there, but why? Why were women drinking more? So that's what I got into. And what I did really, you find? What did you find well, when you started diving in? I found that wine and alcohol has become a much bigger part of, of our culture. We have these, these ebbs and flows with alcohol in our, in our society. And the early 1990s were a big down point. Things were written. The economy was good. People were feeling optimistic. The Berlin Wall was down. Nelson Mandela was president of South Africa. The world looked like a really safe optimistic place for a lot of people. 
and we were coming off of the just the the Reagan years where the just say no to drugs and um, many of us have had come of age in the early 1980s. I know I did. I got my driver's license in the I think 80. Let me think. Yeah, it would have been. Mine was 84, Valentine's Day, 1984. I got yeah. my driver's license. Yeah. I think mine was 83, I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I got my driver's license in 81. And those were the years where Mothers Against Drunk Driving had really hammered home. Throughout the drinking age had, had, had risen in many states from 18 or 20 to 21. That became a, a nationwide thing. And there was a big, thick wall between drinking and women. But it started eroding in college, where more and more women were going to college. And the culture, of course, at universities and colleges nationwide is really uh, very, very deeply immersed in alcohol, whether it's football games or frat parties or going to dive bars and shooting pool. Women were becoming much more exposed to a higher level of drinking. And the more women who went to college, the more women who entered the workforce, the more those habits stayed with them. And it also became, from what I what I learned after 9-11, with the dawn of Sophia, with looking at everybody else's Instagram and Facebook posts and seeing, huh, what's wrong with my life? Uh, On one hand, on the other hand, the glamorization of alcohol, wine was being marketed far, far, far more uh, heavily to women than it ever had been in the past. It was seen as a a ladies' drink, Chardonnay, and we all seem to have come of age in that, in those, in that, that, that time period in the uh, late 1980s where Chardonnay was a diet drink. I mean, literally, that was what it was sort of, oh, it's lower calories. Lower calories, how? It has 10 fewer calories than a glass of red wine. But, but it, somehow, it somehow took hold as, as a feminine beverage. It's always so glamorized, like commercials and ads and everything. You see them, you know, with a drink that just looks like good times. And I know that that's an advertiser's job is to sell their product and make it look better, but it is always so glamorized. Um, and you know, that's just another contributor to it. Just like you said, with the Facebook post and, and it's really been glamorized. And you also pointed out how, when you go into a, um, liquor store now, there's vodka in every flavor that you could imagine. So it, it seems like it's definitely they're finding their target. Right. Um, yeah, as right. women. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The other day, I happened to be at a at a liquor store and I noticed flavored vodka that was rose water and grapefruit, and the bottle was very. It was Kettle One too. It was, the, but it, yeah. was, it was very femmed up. It was pink and soft labeling and there was another one for peach blossom and uh, these were different vodka you know different yeah different different makers but uh, uh, and that's recent that's within Mm -hmm. the last two years before Mm -hmm. that there were there was vanilla there was raspberry there was but this is now progressed to the higher end um um companies are Mm -hmm. doing that 
So, yeah. yeah, that's just a whole nother target. And, you know, so, you know, in your book, I was so amazed how AA was not always woman friendly. I was so astonished by that whole story. Can you share a little bit about uh, the history of AA and then, you know, how women, how that may not be the best place for a woman to go? Right. That was also another big surprise for me because I thought when I was wrapping up my research, okay, well, I'm going to do a, include a chapter about how women can get better and include some solutions. And I'm shocked to find that actually AA works for 5% of the people who try it. And yet we have developed this deep over-reliance on this faith and abstinence-based program that was founded by two men at the top of the social pyramid, two white men, in 1935. And we don't question wait, why do we continue to go to this 12-step program when the efficacy is simply not there? It, it works for the people it works for, but that's anecdote. And I, I thought that. I knew people for whom it worked. And they say, well, it saved my life, and I, I swear by it, and I've got to go to my, my meetings, and if I don't go to my meetings, I'm... I'm, you know, I'd be dead or in jail or, or institutionalized somehow. Well, those are tropes that we have absorbed, that we've heard, and because it works for Aunt, Aunt or more likely it's going to work for Uncle Bob than it does for Aunt Betty, but we hear that, and it's hard to refute someone else's personal experience. But the science is not there, and there are far more... Uh, evidence-based treatments that can help people moderate, help people cut back or abstain if that's what they need to do. And they're far more effective for women mm -hmm. than AA. Another thing about AA is that it requires you to, to declare your powerlessness over alcohol. And the men who started AA, again, in 1935, were successful people in the world. One was a, well, he was a failed stockbroker because he drank too much, but he was quite wealthy. Um, another was a, was a successful doctor. They also had, who also had a runaway drinking problem. He was a proctologist. Alcohol was the only thing over which these two men did not have dominion. They had plenty of power in the world, in society, in their lives, in their marriages. And women who drink too much are not drinking because that's the only thing they don't have power over. They drink too much because they don't have control for the rest of their lives. Women are far more likely to overdrink because they're anxious, they're depressed, they might have a history of eating disorders, or they've been sexually abused. Those are four big risk factors that are far more prevalent among women. And to go to a meeting and say, well, I'm powerless over alcohol. Well, you're powerless over alcohol because your kids are going through a hard time and need your help with every single science experiment that comes down the pike. Um, your parents are elderly and need your care. You're struggling at work to try to keep it all together. You feel yourself aging. And by gosh, you know, that that. That Pinot Grigio in the refrigerator 
can take the edge off. Mm-hmm. And one glass can easily lead to two or three or four. Mm-hmm. And if you don't yourself, but going to AA and declaring your vulnerabilities and your powerlessness to a room full of strangers is not necessarily the perfect way to get better. And AA, one thing that I discovered, which was shocking to me, and it makes perfect sense, is that AA is often a magnet for sexual predators. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that part of your book, yeah. I was floored. I, I was, I just, it just made me so angry what happened to some women in this book. But go ahead and share some of that. Well, think about it, okay? So mm-hmm. you go, you're supposed to be anonymous. You're only gave, given your first name. You talk about, I went to several meetings. I went to probably 12 or 15 meetings all over the country so that I could get a flavor of, of what they were like. And you you frequently talk about the worst experience that you had while drunk and how hard it is to try to stay sober. And you get, and you need, you need help. One of the, the tenets of AA, one of the steps of AA, is that you get help from the strangers who are in your meeting. And you have a sponsor who can help you, guide you through the rough spots. And oftentimes... The, 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 if you think about it, um, AA is anonymous again, right? So um, you don't know anybody's last name, and it can be a smoke screen, a big screen for somebody who is on the lookout for a vulnerable young man or woman, or doesn't have to be young. You can have same-sex predators as well. Um, but it was such uh, a problem in Australia, in Great Britain, in AA groups there, that they actually issued protective guidelines for newcomers who were coming in. Hey, be very careful. Don't, um, uh, you know, just get, this is a place for you to get better, but you need to understand maybe not everybody here has your best interests at heart. The United States General Office, which uh, had headquarters in New York City, never has has issued any guidelines like that. And there are multiple cases of group leaders. It's a non-hierarchical organization. It's there, it's it's there, you know, different groups. You could start a group anywhere you wanted. And there was a group, sort of a cult-like group in Washington, DC, another one in Los Angeles, where these women, in order to get the sponsor they wanted. They had to be the playthings of the, the sexual playthings of the group leader. And ultimately that got shut down. But the the rubric for that sort of abuse is well established. In fact, the, the, the founder of AA himself, his name was um, uh, Bill Wilson, there was a euphemism surrounding his behavior toward women. And it was sanctioned. It was a sanctioned thing called the 13th step. And he was, he, any pretty new woman came along uh, was uh, uh, vulnerable to his, his, his harassment at the very least. And it was just winked at. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, well, and there's such scary ones like the, you know, examples you shared in the book about the woman that um, she was trying to walk by herself. She had mace with her. 
everything. And that that guy was so insistent that he didn't leave her home. Was that the one he stayed for? Like, it was very strange. Like he stayed at her home and just used this power over her. And was there another serial killer as well? Was it a, was, I don't remember it was a serial killer, but somebody that was in prison that was brought up in your book as well, that he was like, Oh yeah, I use AA meetings. That's my place to go. Right. Yes, um, I actually did a, a story after the book came out, a horrific story about a, a beautiful young woman in California who was in a sober living house and she'd had, she'd struggled with um, uh, drugs and alcohol and she met this handsome stranger at an AA meeting, fell in love with him. And again, strangers, right? Strangers. You only have this person's first name, so you're not going to put them into the. You're probably not going to put them into the. Uh, uh, do a background check right. on on yeah. on this person, and you're all there for the same reason, to get better, to stay away from drugs and alcohol, and the, he was in Narcotics Anonymous. She was in AA, and and she struggled with both uh, drugs and alcohol. But the 12 steps remain the same, whether you're in Narcotics Anonymous or, or uh, Alcoholics Anonymous. And she ultimately um, began living with this guy and was killed by him in a murderous rage one night. I think she died in 2013. Just a horrific, horrific, horrific story. Mm-hmm. And that's not the only one. There are plenty of those. Right. That, that was so shocking. Yeah. When you talk about alternatives, evidence-based scientific alternatives for treatment, can you give us some examples of those? Yes. There is a treatment that has been used throughout Western Europe. Uh, It was pioneered in Finland by an American researcher who actually went to Finland in part because of the support, the federal support in Finland for other uh, uh, evidence-based treatments for drinking problems. And he came up with the idea to use an opioid antagonist called naltrexone that if you take it an hour before you are supposed to drink, it stops the brain from receiving the chemicals, the feel-good chemicals that alcohol typically uh, helps you feel. It stops the endorphins from going back into the, uh, the, the alcohol helps release a series of brain chemicals, but one of them is endorphins that feel good just for, for our purposes a feel good hormone uh, or brain uh, uh, chemical. It makes you feel giddy. It makes you laugh. So again, it takes the edge off. If you take this drug, it literally blocks the feel-good chemicals from reaching the brain, the receptors. So you take the drug, you take a sip, you don't feel anything. You take another sip, you don't feel anything. You take a third or fourth sip, nothing. And over time, you unlearn your habit of drinking more to achieve the uh, uh, high that you want. And it has been used, I believe, since the late 1990s with extraordinary success. Again, Finland is a very homogenous society. There is a gene that 
has been found to be more, if you, if you carry this gene, I don't remember what it is now, it's got a long name. If you happen to carry this mutation, you're far more likely to be able to um, have this drug work for you. And that gene is far more likely to appear among people from Northern Europe. So it's not perfect, for example, if you are... If, if you're Latino or you're um, African-American. But there are other, many other drugs that help cut craving in the pipeline. They're used, they're, some of them are used off-label. There's another drug called topiramate that helps cut craving. The um, um, uh, antidepressant Wellbutrin also has been uh, found to help people cut their cravings. Just because you drink too much now, doesn't mean you're always going to have this problem. And if you can step back, take control, assess the situation, and not wander into a lifelong label, oh, I'm an alcoholic, I did that because I'm an alcoholic. That word is so dated. That word comes from the 19th century. It was used by AA to describe a personality type that you could never get away from. The only way you could get away from that, that, that um, surefire descent into drinking your way into hell was to join AA. It's just not true. And it's, right. just, it's, it's just not true. So. And another thing you brought up in the book was some people can cut back on what they drink. Like, so that was something that AA did, uh, doesn't promote. Like, it's absolutely no drinking. You know, if you had one glass of wine, I'm a slip up. But you, you made a lot, you made some great analogies in there. And I was trying to think of the one that if you gain five pounds, it, if you lost 70 pounds and you gain five, well, you're not, you didn't, you know, you're not a, you're not, that wasn't a mess that you didn't ruin it. Um, you, you had a little bitty setback, but that's nothing. So you were comparing it to having a glass of wine. Did you get drunk? No, I didn't get drunk. So that was something else the book brought up. Can you share a little bit about um, people who can? I can't, I'm, I'm at a loss for the word right now. What is it, moderation? Yes. I don't remember. Yes, Mod- okay. Mod- moderation. So the DSM-5, the psychiatrist Bible that helps uh, uh, put, give, categorize various forms of mental illness, came up with a new phrase called alcohol use disorder in 2013. That replaced alcohol abuse, which was in the prior, the DSM-IV. So alcoholism is this phrase we sort of bandy about. And it, again, it, it was really popularized by AA, and it's a really all-or-nothing approach. If you start drinking too much, if you have gone from two glasses to three glasses over the course of the pandemic, you're on your way to alcoholism. That's what AA would tell you. That's not what science would tell you. Science would tell you, okay, that's not a great sign, Um, but you can cut back. You can use mindfulness techniques. You can use anti-craving drugs. You can uh, use harm reduction techniques. Instead of drinking at five o'clock, go for a long walk. Do yoga with Adrienne if you have to from six to seven. And then have a glass of wine at 7.30. So you don't have two hours of pouring yourself just a little bit more. 
So there are many, many, many ways of taking stock of one's drinking and looking at where you might be on the scale of alcohol use disorder. So people who are on the severe end and who are really having a hard time moderating, having a hard time stepping back, they, there might be a genetic component to that. They probably are not going to be likely candidates for moderation or harm reduction. But the other people on the mild end, in the moderate end, in the, in the moderate middle, they are very good candidates, and they're candidates all over the rest of the world for learning how to take control of a substance that can bring us joy and sparkle and liven things up. It doesn't have to be totally the devil. For women in the pandemic, alcohol obviously increased during the pandemic, but they were also responsible for not only maintaining their jobs, but now they're teaching their children at home. And they don't really have an outlet because they can't go out and do anything. So the fact that they start drinking in private because you're at home, so it's not like you're going to a bar with your girlfriends and having a few after work, you're now drinking at home. It creates, it's like the perfect storm to create a problem. So if someone feels like, you know, I've taken my drinking from just an enjoyable time of, you know, kind of relaxation to, I think it's taken more and more for me to actually feel relaxed. What do you suggest that they do first? Well, there are a couple of, I know this sounds really sort of rudimentary, but if one technique that, that, um, a lot of room reductionists will say is don't start drinking until late in the evening. If you, again, like I just said, if you start drinking at five o'clock, well, find two and a half hours to not do that. Even if that's your homework time with your kids or whatever it is, or just you need to take some time for yourself and, and reduce the number of of hours, therefore the number of drinks that you might have. Reduce your exposure. Give yourself a treat with some beautiful water. Some, you know, there are so many waters now. I mean, it's ridiculous and I'm, it's bad for the planet, but if you're struggling with drinking, get yourself some really nice water. Put it in a pretty glass. Put some fruit in it. Make it, make yourself feel special. Give yourself a during this pandemic time, I mean, my gosh, I, I my kids are older, so I really feel for for those 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 women about how to manage everything. Little kids trying to do your job, trying to keep your house clean, trying to manage a relationship—it's really tough. But another thing that that um, this is a wonderful thing that I remember in writing a piece after the book came out. It's a really analog treatment plan. A woman was really struggling with drinking too much. She'd gone from wine to vodka. The wine wasn't doing it anymore, so she was downing a lot of vodka every night. And she quit drinking for 30 days. And when she began reintroducing um, alcohol, uh, there's, a, there's actually a program. It's called, Harm, it's called hands.org harm reduction, abstinence, and moderation support. It's an online group. She followed the protocols by drinking for 30 days, 
And then she reintroduced wine at night with index cards. After one glass, she wrote her cognition, her feelings, how the wine made her feel, what she was, what were her dreams for the night, what did she want to get accomplished that night, and then she had a second glass. She did the same thing. She wrote, you know, what she wanted to accomplish that night, how she was feeling, how dinner was coming along, what she was looking forward to watching or reading. Actually, she was also a musician, so I think she was looking forward to uh, writing some music, and so on. And she, she went back to drinking four glasses of wine a night, and she wrote eat her, her, you know, just like I said, she, her cognition, her, her emotions, her plans for the night. And she noticed in the morning how awful her handwriting got maudlin she was, how labile she was. And the evening was shot to hell after, after three glasses. After two, really. That's when her cognition shifted. That's when her, her ambition for the night shifted. That's when her emotions got... Uh, uh, she lost control of her emotions. She got weepy. She got sad, very self-pitying and uh, angry. And she just told herself, Jane, that's ridiculous. You're caught on this too. Mm-hmm. Too. And she kept those note cards on the refrigerator as a reminder to herself about what happened. Her, she happened to like white wine, so every time she went to the refrigerator to open to get pour herself another glass, it was right there. It was mm-hmm. don't do. And she, I think she put like a stop sign, really analog, uh, 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 old-fashioned cognitive behavioral technique to you know, like a green light, green light, and then a big stoplight. Mm-hmm. Like, wow! No, don't do that. And she. Wow. She treated herself. It sounds almost like the story, when we interviewed Patricia Heaton, the actress, she's now been three years alcohol-free. But the turning point for her was when she was at her son's house, or it might have been them at her house, and they were playing a board game, and she was maybe on her third or fourth glass. And it wasn't until her son's the next day said, you didn't even, re-, like, she couldn't remember anything. Like, she really... She couldn't remember be- a word. I remember right. she, I couldn't say a certain word. I just couldn't say it. And then yeah. her children mm-hmm. kind of gave her the feedback. Yeah, you you had drank too much, Mom. And it was kind of at that point she said, that's enough. I, I don't want to be this way anymore. Mm-hmm. But her story uh, sounded so typical of, of so many, what you talked about in your book, you know, you get started, you're cooking dinner. You might have a glass of wine while you're cooking dinner. And then you are you sit down, you're having another glass while you're serving dinner. Then you're having a glass during dinner. Then you're cleaning up and you're having another glass. And, and that is, you know, so many things that you said in the book. But just by, you know, even you could do like she did, like she said the next morning, that was that. Like, I'm not doing this anymore. Yeah. But, I, you know, the whole idea of starting, okay, if you want this, maybe if you could wait a little bit till this time, put it off until this time, then that's less time to have that many drinks um, at, that, at that moment. Because yes. for some people, the thought of abstinence is just really scary. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you can try moderation first. If it doesn't work for you, then to start something new. It doesn't mean you're destined to be just in 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 the uh, 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 suffering with this 
substance for the rest of your life. You can, mm-hmm. you can, you have the power to figure it out. And if alcohol free life is, if an alcohol free life is, is the route for you, more power to you, but mm-hmm. it doesn't have to be that way. And if you just enjoy the look, you can do a mocktail, which is yes. just a fake yeah. cocktail. I think it's such an important topic because of the fact that during the pandemic, it's not about social drinking more. It's about dealing with stress. And that's one of the reasons why we wanted you to come on. And, and we appreciate the fact that you gave some options for women that maybe it's not stepping right into, hi, I'm so-and-so and I'm an alcoholic, mm-hmm. that there are steps you can go to. Now, obviously we're not talking about genetic components on this episode or anything like that. But I also wanted to bring up the fact that you have a new book out called American Baby, A Mother, A Child, and The Shadow History of Adoption, which I'm looking forward to reading. Can you give our listeners a little bit of a preview of it so that they can go out and check it out yes thank you for mentioning that so the book american baby is about a late friend of mine who needed a kidney donation i met him when i was a reporter in portland oregon he was an adopted guy david rosenberg who was getting a kidney donation from a friend and in our first meeting i was writing about that living kidney donors as a as a feature piece in our first meeting, he told me that, David told me that he hoped the story would go viral and that his birth mother would see it and recognize him as her son. He had been cherished and loved by his adoptive parents, and he loved and cherished them, but they were long gone, and he was ill, and he wanted to know more medical information for his three children. The story didn't go viral in the way that he wanted. That was in 2007. I think it did go viral locally, and seven more people gave kidneys as a result, but his birth mother didn't see it. In 2014, I had moved back east by that time I'd left Portland and uh, lived in New Jersey. He called me to say that he had taken a DNA test and he had big news. He had met his birth mother, and that she had not given him up as he had always believed. She had done everything she could to fight as a teenage mother in New York City in 1961-62 to try and and keep custody of him. She had married his birth father, George Katz. They'd gone on to have three more children, and she had spent decades trying to warn him of all of his medical history. She had tried to leave contact information at the adoption agency in New York City that handled the adoption. It was called the Louise Wise Agency, and they've never passed on the messages. So Margaret Earl Katz was able to meet David Rosenberg, her firstborn son, three months before he died of the very illnesses about which she had spent those decades trying to warn him. Wow. And when David taught me about this, he said he was very angry. He was overjoyed to meet his mother and um, one sister who was a famous opera singer in Berlin, and he himself had been a cantor. He was a, um, a singer of songs at uh, a large synagogue in Portland. So I delved into both the narrative of David and Margaret and what happened to them, and I took a big step back and looked at the nationwide adoption system that we had. Uh, we had maternity homes where young women were sent off in shame and secrecy in almost every single state. And there was a huge sort of shadow baby boom in adoption. In the baby, the baby boom was going on in the years after the war, as, as we know. Um, 
that in an era of no sex education, no birth control, even for married couples, until 1965, the Supreme Court decision in 1965 that legalized the pill for married women, mm -hmm. Griswold versus Connecticut, and then uh, abortion was, of course, illegal. Teenagers in those post-war years, in those prosperous post-war years, had privacy in the backseat of family Buicks, in suburban rec rooms, in their own private bedrooms, and four, about four million young unmarried women got pregnant in the shadow of this big demographic boom where people were having large families and getting married, these young girls got pregnant too. And because society shamed them so much, in the years before the war, if you got pregnant, you had a shotgun wedding and that was all there was to it. And you had a, a healthy seven-pound baby who happened to be born six, three months premature. Oh, wink, wink, wink. Well, that wasn't how post-war society was operating. There was college to look forward to, possibly, you know, one, if your family lived in the, were middle class and were working class and living in the cities, you wanted your children to have these new opportunities of this post-war gleaming, growing society for white people. But that, there was a different set of circumstances for black people, of course. But um, so if your daughter got pregnant, you got sent away. And if you couldn't have a baby in the midst of that, those go-go baby boom years, you were a married couple who weren't able to conceive, the only way for you to obtain a child was to get one who had been mostly forcibly surrendered by mm -hmm. uh, one of these young girls who got got pregnant, as we used to say, out of wedlock. And then once once an adoption was finalized, the adoptee got a second amended birth certificate that listed only his or her adoptive name and his adoptive parents were put down on the document as if they were the original mother and father. And believe it or not, this system is still in place in 40 states. 40 states. Adoptee wow. rights activists have been trying to overturn these secrecy laws since the 1970s. And they just, they only last year did Connecticut pass a law. There was a law in Texas that got a bill in Texas that got slapped down. There was a bill in Florida that got slapped down. There was a bill in there's a bill in California that's been languishing. These gigantic states where there are hundreds of thousands of adoptees, you 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 still don't have the right to to access your original documents. Yes, maybe if you're lucky, you can uh, find a, a, a relative on 23andMe who might be able to lead you to your birth family, but. That depends on strangers mm -hmm. spitting into a vial and sending their DNA off to a, a big tech company. Not everybody wants to do that. The book sounds so interesting, and, and we recommend that our listeners go out and check out both books because you are an author of, of several books. Go on to your website and you'll see it. But you know, check out American Baby and Mother, a Child, and the Shadow History of Adoption because it really is a fascinating topic. Thank yeah. you so much for coming Thank on the you. show. Yeah. We really appreciate it. It's yes. my pleasure. I loved our conversation. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Me. Really thank honored you. to be with you. We want to thank Gabrielle 
so much for talking to us today. Both of these books are so fascinating. You will really learn quite a bit if you read both of them. Um, So her best kept secret is the one about women and alcohol. And then American Baby is the one about the story of adoption in America. I also wanted to mention that she referred to hands.org as a resource for women who are all of a sudden saying, I think I'm drinking a little too much here. What can I do? Maybe a first step is to do some research on that website. So we Mm -hmm. appreciate the fact that she referred us over to there. And guys, make sure you are subscribed to Hot Flashes and Cool Topics podcast. Every week on Wednesdays, we have a new episode and you never know what you're going to get, but it's always about women in midlife and beyond. So have a great week, guys. We will talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Bye.